Uh, I just want to say uh, before we start, I love your pastor. Uh, he has been a great, dear friend to me personally. We love his wife, Lori. We probably love Lori more than Bruce, but uh, amen, amen. Uh, no, we love Bruce. They've been so, such good friends to Candy and me through the years, and uh, he's been a great counsel to me, a sounding board. And so it is a, and I'm, I'm sincere about this, it is a dear privilege to be here today. So many friends here at, at Biltmore, uh, Scott and Brundy and Marcus. Uh, just so many, Adam, and just good to be here with you. You have a great church, you know that, amen? Like you have a really, and this is not like every church in America. So this is, what God's doing at Biltmore is special. And uh, as we just saw this morning, I had a wonderful time with your students this week. They were engaged and they heard the gospel. Many responded to the gospel this weekend. And so thank you for coming. We, we praise the Lord for what he's doing in our student ministry here. Uh, had a great time at Wake weekend. Uh, we're in a series called Mountains Can Move, and uh, I'm going to share with you in just a moment how God moved a mountain in my own life, and it was a $200 a day heroin and cocaine addiction. Uh, and I'll share that at the end, so I just want you to hang on for that. But I want to share with you before we start, I know in a group this size, there are many different people here, many different backgrounds, different situations, different socioeconomic classes but the one thing that unites us is this. Every person in here has been desperately or desperately needs a Savior or has been radically saved by our Savior. Amen? And that's really everyone in here. And so I don't know where you are, but I want to challenge you that in just a few moments when I give you a time to respond, that you would be open to respond and ask the Lord to set you free from addiction or setback or issues in your life so that you can serve him fully. The title of the message this morning is this. We're going to talk about a cry for desperation. A cry for desperation. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment what it was like uh, years ago in the, in the uh, New Testament times to be born blind. Okay, So I want you to close your eyes for just a moment, those who haven't already. <laughs> for just a moment. I want you to imagine what it's like to be born blind. You'll never see the colors of a rainbow. You'll never see the stars in the sky. You can never appreciate a wonderful sunset. That's the world, open your eyes, that Bartimaeus was born into in the first century. Uh, we're going to study a man who was pretty prominent in, in the New Testament times. In fact, it is the last miracle of Jesus before he goes to Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting as well. It is the only miracle, write this down if you're taking notes, in the Synoptic Gospels where we have a name for a person healed. And that's pretty interesting. And I think the reason for that is it validates the ministry of Jesus right before he goes to Nazareth. Now, if you were begging in the first century, you had two things that were your prized possessions, okay? The first was you had a cup. And what you would do is you'd find a well-populated street. You would sit down on the corner of that street. You would hold your cup out, and you would hope that someone would have compassion in their heart and give you some money, right? I mean, if you lose that, that's your income, that's your livelihood, that's your health insurance. I mean, that's everything in that cup, right? The second thing, which is equally important, is a cloak. And I left my cloak over there. Scott, do you mind getting that? Sorry. I normally don't preach with props, but today for Biltmore. Let's give Scott a hand, huh? Amen? Thanks, Scott. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, the cloak. Probably would have been this cloak, but this is the one I got. So here's what the cloak would do. On a hot summer day in those Palestinian days, he would hold this cloak up above his head to do what? Anybody with me? 
to shade himself, right? And it'd be really hot during, during the day. But at night, it would get really cold in Jericho. And so he would take this cloak, he would sit down with his cup, he would pull the cup in, and he would wrap himself with the cloak. Now, I found an interesting insight here. Uh, I'm a big... Uh, Jewish studies, Hebraic movement kind of buff. I'm all into this. The, did you know Jesus was a Jewish man from the Middle Eastern culture? He wasn't a Western, blonde-haired, blue-eyed American surfer dude from California. You all know that? Right? Okay. Yeah, because some people don't know. We see the movies. We don't know. But Jesus is, a, is an Eastern man. So the Eastern culture showed us that in order to beg in Israel, this is a great insight here to think about, you had to have a coat to beg. It was your permit Certain cloaks were different colors for different cities. So in Jericho, you might have a black coat. In Galilee, you might have a blue coat. In Jerusalem, you may have a green coat, right? So I want you to feel the weight of what's happening here. If he loses this cloak, don't miss this. He loses what? Audience participation part. By the way, if he loses the cloak, he loses what? Everything, right? I mean, he loses his livelihood, his income. So I want you to imagine, what is that one thing in your life? Young people, listen. If you lose this one thing, like you lose everything. Now, I know in my kids, I have a 10-year-old, I mean, 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. Uh, if they lose an iPad, it's World War III in the gallery. Anybody with me? <laughs> right? You take a cell phone away from a teen, right? So I want you to think, what is the cloak in your life? That's the story I want us to go into. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you're at verse 46, at the church I pastor in Nashville, the Nashville, Tennessee area, we like to say word at Long Hollow because we believe it's the word that changes our life. Amen? And so when you're there, you can say word. Amen. The word. <laughs> Two of us. Okay. <laughs> Students have let me down. I told them not to let me down. No, I'm uh, Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many warned him to keep quiet. Take note of that. But he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, I know in a group this size, there are many different situations and circumstances, many different challenges, people at different seasons of life. God, we know the answer to all of our problems is Jesus. Father, we pray today that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, let me, let me teach you three insights from this passage I think are helpful for us. And again, it'll lead up to a response time at the end. The first thing I want you to see to have a truly transformative experience with Christ, you need to number one, write this down, understand your situation. You need to understand your situation. Uh, Jesus is traveling through Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, to give you a kind of a backstory here, uh, Jericho is right next to the lowest place on earth. It's about 850 feet below sea level. And over an 18 to 20 mile period from Jericho to Jerusalem, you're going to traverse 20 miles, but you're going to go from 850 feet below sea level to 3,500 feet above sea level. 
in 20 miles. So it's a long journey, right? They're about to take that journey. Jesus is on the last stop on the salvation train to Jerusalem. I mean, this is it. And you got to understand, behind him, I want you to picture it, there is an entourage of people. There's thousands of people following this so-called Messiah to Jerusalem. Very few for the right reasons. Many of them, we have to believe, are there for the wrong reasons. Bartimaeus comes out that day just like any other day. I want to bring you into his world. He has his tattered cloak wrapped around his body probably as he comes out for the day. And he finds the spot he always begs from. You have to feel the weight of this. This is the same day as any other day, right? Nothing special about this day. But oh, he's in for a surprise. He takes that cloak off. He probably throws it down on the ground to create a mat for him to sit on. And then he sits and waits. He starts to hear the city come alive. And although it's a spring day, the cool air is broken by the sounds of people coming into town. He starts to smell. You know, they say when someone loses their eyesight, their sense of smell is is keenly greater and their ears are, are, are louder so they can sense things differently. He starts to smell, you can almost smell it, the fruits and vegetables being brought to the market. He starts to smell the fish being brought down from Galilee into the city. He starts to hear the hooves of the donkeys starting to come into town. And all of a sudden, he hears some commotion in the distance that there's a man, a Messiah, by the name of Jesus. Now, he's never met Jesus before, but he's heard about him. And Bartimaeus is about to take a chance on Jesus that I think, honestly, many of us would have missed. Notice what he does. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, don't miss this. This blind beggar is about to school the religious leaders in messianic theology. Why do I say that? That line, Jesus, son of David, has so much meaning. I want to unpack it for you. Write this down if you're taking notes. When he says the word Jesus, son of David, or the phrase Jesus, son of David, what is he saying? Go go back with me to Matthew chapter 1. I want to show you quickly what he's showing us. Matthew chapter 1 verse 6 gives us a genealogy of Jesus. In fact, Matthew's point for his entire gospel is to prove that Jesus is the son of who? Of David. Abraham too, obviously. But David. Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king we want. And so in verse 6, here's what we see. Jesse fathered king who? David. And then we go down to the end of the genealogy and we see Joseph fathered who? Look at it in verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, gave birth to who? Jesus. So here's what he's saying. Jesus, I know exactly, don't miss this. I know exactly who you are. But secondly, he knows who he is. Because he asked Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have what? Have mercy on me. That is so insightful. Because what he's saying is, I know who you are, but I know who I am. What is mercy? Do we, do we know there's a difference between mercy and grace, right? Grace is when I give you something you don't deserve, right? Mercy is when I hold back from you something you do deserve, right? You see the difference. So he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's far from God, but he cries out anyway. Now, I have to ask you this because I think this is going to catch some people in a moment by surprise. And when I share my testimony, some of you are going to hear that and say, man, I'm nothing like your testimony. Golly, your life was so bad, you needed to find Jesus. I didn't live that bad of a life, right? People have said that to me before. 
Like you had to get so low. You need, I, I'm good with God. I, I, I'm good in life. I don't need God. You want to know something? If that's what you're thinking this morning, that is the most dangerous place to be. If you're at one of our campuses online, listen to me. Why? Why is that the most dangerous place to be? Here's why. Because a comfortable person will never come to Christ. Because they don't need him, right? I mean, my life is good. Everything's, everything's kosher. I mean, everything's fine. But I'm thankful that I lost everything I own because I had to get so low when I realized, to realize what was important to me, and I realized it was Christ. See, Bartimaeus loses it all. And he cries out to, Lord, to the Lord, understanding his situation. Number two is this. Write this down. We need to surrender to Christ. So not only do we cry out to the Lord in honesty of who we are and where we are, we need to surrender to Christ. Let's go back to Mark 10. Let's pick up the story in verse 49. And I can't emphasize this verse enough. Candy, my wife, and I were talking about this last night. It's just so powerful. Jesus stopped. I don't, think, I don't think you got that. Let me, try, let me try that one again, right? Jesus stopped. Aren't you grateful we serve a God who's not too busy to stop for us? Isn't that so cool? Like Jesus is on a mission to redeem the world, and yet he has time for the lowest of society, the most overlooked and looked over man. He stops and says, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling you. Verse 50, I can't, I can't stop here enough for you to see this. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. I mentioned earlier that if he loses this cloak, he loses what? Everything. <laughs> and I don't know if it happened this way, but I imagine it could have. Bartimaeus is there. You have to understand, he hasn't taken a bath in probably days or weeks. This man is unclean. For a group of people who are about to go to Passover, they can't get around this man. They can't touch him. They can't be around. So I imagine Bartimaeus gets to his feet. He has his cloak. Now, the text doesn't say this, which I've always thought was interesting. The text doesn't say that he jumps to his feet and he takes his cloak and he says, hey, hey, man, can you... Can you hold this for me? Doesn't say that. The text doesn't say he folds it in half and puts it back down on the ground in his particular spot. You understand, there are thousands of people there. If he loses this cloak, he loses what? Everything. Everything. The text doesn't even say, which would have been easy, that Bartimaeus got to his feet, tucked it in the back of his pants, and came to Jesus. I want you to feel the weight of this. The text says, don't miss this, he comes to his feet. In, in my mind, I imagine the disciples part like the Red Sea, and Bartimaeus takes his cloak, and he throws it aside, and he comes to Jesus. I, I wonder this morning what the cloak is in your life that's holding you back from Christ. You know, for some in here, it could be an addiction. For some, it could be shame or guilt from the past. Uh, for some, it could be the sin of pornography at uh, Long Hollow, the church I'm pastoring, preaching a series on relationships. I 
talked about pornography last week, how uh, it is a $90 billion industry right now. 26% of women struggle with pornography. It's pretty fascinating to think about. Could be the sin of pornography. Could be anger, could be resentment. Uh, it could be uh, sin in your life. I don't know what the cloak is in your life, but here's what I want you to do. In just a moment after I share my story, I want you to name it, I want you to label it, and I want you to leave it at the feet of Jesus before you leave. See, what Bartimaeus is showing us is this. If he loses the cloak, he loses everything. And here's what I think Bart does. He shows us that he doesn't need the cloak anymore because he is that convinced that Jesus is going to heal him. Don't we need that kind of passion for Christ? Amen? Don't we need that kind of desire to follow Jesus like that? So the third thing we lead to is this, and it's really cool insight, is not only does he understand his situation— which we need to do. Not only does he surrender to Christ, number three, he follows Jesus on the way. Look at verse 51. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, or Rabbi, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said, go, your faith has saved you, and immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. How many people, just think honestly here, how many people would have been that honest with Jesus about their own situation? See, I feel that sometimes when I come to God, and, and, and it's cool about Jesus, Jesus knows what he needs. Like, like this morning, if, if someone walks forward and, and they're blind and they walk forward, naturally as a pastor, I'm going to say before they say to me, let, let me guess, you want us to pray for you to see. I would probably say that, right? Or someone comes uh, with an illness. Let me guess, you want us to pray for your camp. That's what I would say. But that's not what Jesus does. And what's fascinating about Jesus is he already knows what he's going to ask before he even asks it. But he still wants him to ask it. Why? Because that's what a relationship is. It's a communication, right? So he goes to the blind man, he says, what do you want me to do? And I wonder how many of us would have been that honest. Jesus, I, uh, you know, I know I haven't been a good person. I know I hadn't been in church in a while. And man, you know I don't read the Bible much. But would you help me right now? That's what we do, right? We kind of warm up to God. But not Bartimaeus. He is so open and honest, he just goes for it. He's like, I got one chance with God. Rabbi, I want to see and I wonder this morning how many of us would have asked for that big of miracle. Now, I don't want to sound like a prosperity preacher this morning. I don't want you to think I'm a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, believe it, achieve it. Okay, so I don't want you to think that. But I do see in the Bible something interesting. That the size of our prayers are in proportion to the size of our God. And the reason some of you are praying small prayers is maybe because you have a wallet-sized picture of God in your mind. See, Bartimaeus says, if I got one shot to ask the Lord, I'm going to ask for everything. And I don't know again how it happened, but imagine the disciples part like the Red Sea. Bartimaeus smells. He doesn't look very appealing, and he starts to stumble to the Lord, and he gets over to Jesus, and you know Jesus is here welcoming him. He's like, hey, man, what do you want me to do for you? And I want you to imagine the scene here. Two guys, all eyes on them. And all of a sudden, picture it. 
that eye socket that's never seen the light of day, filled with mud and sand, begins to well up with a tear. That other eye socket that's never seen the light of day begins to well up with another, and a a tear starts to run down his cheek. And all of a sudden, to the amazement of all the crowd, those eyes start to open. And standing before him, the first thing he sees is the light of the world. I don't think, I don't think y'all heard what I just said there. You gotta understand, the very first thing he sees when he opens his eyes is who? Jesus. Isn't that what happens when we get saved? The very first thing, because this man is not about a blind man getting healed. This is, by, this is about a sinful man getting saved and right relationship with God. It's a picture of salvation. So he opens his eyes and he, said, and he says, I can see. And Jesus said, hey man, go home. Like go home and tell your parents that you can see now. And honestly, if I'm, if I'm being truthful, I'd probably would have gone home. I would have gone back to mom and dad who kicked me out the house and had to resort to begging. And I would have said, you know, mom and dad, now that I can see, I don't need you guys anyway. Probably would have done that, honestly, right? I definitely would have found all the girls who turned me down for the prom. And I would have found them. And I would have said, listen, now that I can see, you're not that good looking anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, really, that's probably what I would have done, right? Uh, But that's not what he does. See, what he does is once he can see, guess what happens? He says, Jesus, where am I going to go? And here's here's what I believe. We have so many people in our lives that profess to be Christians, but they turn back shortly thereafter. And my response to you is they were never Christians in the in the first place. Because when you see Jesus the way I've seen Jesus, and when you see Jesus the way we've seen Jesus, why would you want to go back to the filth of the world? Amen? When you have everything in the treasure of Christ. But for 26 years, 25 and a half, 26 years, I I wasn't a follower of Christ. In fact, I haven't always been a pastor. I was raised in South Louisiana, uh, New Orleans area. Anybody from the Gulf Coast area? Okay, nobody. No LSU fans in here? Okay. I've been, I've been walking gingerly through town with all the Clemson fans. But anyway, not going to start that. Not going to start. But anyway, uh, I was raised in South Louisiana, had a very religious upbringing. My parents were Roman Catholic, half Italian, very religious Catholics. What I mean is uh, we didn't go to church just on Christmas and Easter. We weren't priesters. We actually went like every weekend. And uh, if we missed church on Sunday, we went to confession on Saturday. And uh, the way I lived back then was I would live like I wanted from Monday through Saturday. I would walk in church on Sunday, expect the peace of God to come over me so I could then go out and live like I wanted from Monday through Saturday. Now, here's what I've learned now as a pastor. That doesn't just happen in the Catholic church, right? Like that happens in the Baptist church and the Presbyterian. I mean, that's what people do, right? I knew who Jesus was. But I never had this intimate relationship with him. He was like the tooth fairy or like Santa Claus to me. Like he was like somebody I could call on in need. But as far as walking and hearing and spending time, that was a foreign concept to me. I got a scholarship to come play basketball at UNC Greensboro. Uh, I was a Division I scholarship. I was excited to come play. And literally two weeks before I was coming here, uh, the girl I was dating at the time says, there's no way you're going this far away. I'm going to LSU. You need to stay close to home. And you know, in high school, you're in love. 
or so you think, right? So I gave up the scholarship there, and I opened the phone book, and I found William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Has anybody heard of that college? Yeah, neither had I, right? Like I, I never even heard of the school, but I called the coach. It was an NAI school, and I said, Coach, can I come try out for the team? And he said, you're crazy. The school starts in two weeks. And uh, I said, I pushed him and prodded him, and he hesitantly said yes. And so I come in and try out for the team. And I want to tell you, my mom went with me, and uh, it was like everything aligned on that tryout. Uh, I was like, it, was like, it was like the spirit of Michael Jordan invaded me. I was making, I was dunking the ball backwards. I was shooting through. I mean, I was making shots I never made in years. In fact, my mom told me years later, she said, son, I have to be honest with you. Prior to that day, uh, you've never pr- played that good. And frankly, after that day, you have still not played. But on that day, right, it was like the, and I didn't know sovereignty and I didn't know providence, but I I do now. But back then, I played a perfect tryout. They gave me a full ride to come play basketball. Two weeks into the semester, the girl I'm dating at the time thinks I'm cheating on her, which I wasn't, but she thought I was, and she breaks up with me. And so now I am stuck as a Roman Catholic on the campus of a Southern Baptist college. And if you don't know what that means... Like, I'm the target of every evangelism class on campus, right? There was a game on campus called Convert the Catholic. I was the deer in the headlights, okay? Uh, And they would share Christ with me. But see, even back then as a freshman, I knew that I was a project to them. I knew, young people, listen to me, I knew I was a notch on the back. I knew they didn't really care about me. I was just a name to send to the convention, And it wasn't until my sophomore year that a guy by the name of Jeremy Brown did something very interesting. This is going to blow your mind. Jeremy Brown decided to be my friend. (laughs) Novel idea, right? Like to be my friend. And we shared the same likes and we played basketball. We both played guitar. And so we shared the same interests. And so Jeremy shared the gospel with me. Now, I wasn't ready to receive the gospel, but I would hear the gospel back then. And I would tuck that away for seven years later when those seeds would come to fruition. Just a side note here. Don't ever underestimate the power of the sown seeds of the gospel into the hardened hearts of people. I was the last guy who would ever come to Christ, but it was the willingness of Jeremy to share with me. I would reject the gospel back then. I got out of college uh, and I was in a network marketing business. Anybody familiar with network marketing? Uh, It wasn't Amway, but it was uh, called ACN. It was this phone communications business I was in. Very successful. My dad had a business and he gave, he had the money and I had the time and we broke all the records in the city. Uh, by 20, I was 21 at the time. I thought by 25, I'd be a millionaire. I was test driving F-355 Spider Ferraris. I mean, I thought I had 2000 people in my downline. My mentors were Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, Les Brown. I thought I was going to be like set for life. But we switched companies to another company, which I won't name, uh, which turned out to be a pyramid scheme. And at 21 years old, they pulled the rug out from under me, and I went through a series of depression, Uh, just kind of a a season of depression, where I decided I didn't want to do anything as far as business goes. I wanted to do something different. So I have a college degree at this time, and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll start training for the UFC. That seems like a great idea, right? Uh, So I started training Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu at the time. And some of you are saying, the UFC, that's cool. Well, this is 1998. 
The guys I trained in the dojo, we didn't have health insurance. The prize money to win fights wouldn't even cover the doctor bills. Wasn't a lot of logic going on and intellect here. Uh, But I was coming home uh, from work. I met my parents one night for dinner. Uh, I'm at a restaurant, and a guy walks up to me, and he says, hey, would you be interested? And back then, I was 6'6", 290 pounds. He said, said, uh, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? I said, uh, let me get this straight. Uh, You're going to pay me to fight? I'm in, right? I mean, great business move for me, right? And so uh, I went to his club and uh, put together a whole department of bouncers. And uh, that was pretty wild, if you can imagine, for about three months. I realized I needed a career change when when I was escorting two guys to the parking lot, saying a bunch of things I can't mention now. And uh, one guy leans under the seat, pulls out a loaded nine millimeter, points it at my face and says, now tell me what to do. And I thought, okay, I need a career change. I made a lateral move from bouncing to bartending, right? Just like the lesser of two evils. Back then it seemed right. And so I start bartending. I'm coming home from work. This is the day my whole life changed. November 22nd, 1999, I'm coming home from work and an 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, sandwiches my car into the guardrail at 65 miles an hour. My seatbelt locks, my back torques, and I herniate two discs in my neck and two discs in my back. I'm 22 years old. Remember, I'd never taken drugs before this day. I was an athlete. I didn't, I didn't fool with drugs. But I was legitimately in pain. And I, and I know in a group this size and those watching at one of our campuses, you know people like this. You legitimately get hurt. You have a tooth injury or back or shoulder, and you take the medicine every four to six hours for pain. I went to the doctor. They sent me home with four things at 22 years old, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And you know the story. Uh, Within three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, I can't train anymore. I can't really work. I just want to get high. Uh, And so now I have to find this way to fuel this insatiable desire to get high. And so I meet a so-called friend in the city. And he's like, hey, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs? Robbie, you could take your network marketing business and you can start an illegal import business trafficking street drugs. And so he introduced me to a dealer in the projects of New Orleans who I began to traffic everything from ecstasy, GHB, Special K, which is not a cereal, marijuana, uh, cocaine, and heroin. And I'm not telling you any of this to impress you this morning. I want to impress upon you just how far the Lord has brought me from. Times in the beginning were, were, were great. I mean, by the world standards, I had tons of money, uh, trafficking thousands of pills a week into the city. We did what we wanted. We bought what we wanted. In fact, I went to the Cadillac dealership back then, paid cash for a $50,000 Cadillac CTS. It was the first year it came out. Black on black, chrome rims, 20-inch Katana rims, $9,000 stereo system. If you would have seen me back then by the world standards, here's what you would have said. You would have said, Robbie, you have it all. And for a season, I thought I did. But even back then, when I was far from God, I would lay my head on the pillow, and a still small voice inside of me would say, there has to be more to life than this. I ran out of money as, as a drug addiction always will take. See, here's the thing about an addiction. An addiction will, or, or a sin. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will always keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you ever want to pay. Amen? Like you, like you, don't, you don't mess with sin. You don't, you don't play with sin. It will always destroy your life. Always want more from your life. And 
So I didn't know what to do. And I had this great family that trusted and cared for me and would give me money from time to time, but I was desperate. I went to my dad's wallet, I took his credit card out of the wallet and I memorized the number. And over the course of three months, I charged $15,000 on my family uh, bank account for the business. I almost bankrupted my dad's 30-year business. I never forget the phone call. My mom called me. It was the week before Mardi Gras 2001. She said, Robbie, we found out about what you did. Your father is furious. I'm disappointed. Don't ever come to this house ever again. And I was pride and arrogant. I said, Mom, I don't need you guys. I never needed you in the past. I don't need you now. I hung the phone up. I took the little bit of money I had. I blew it on drugs. And for the next two and a half, three months, it was living hell on earth. In fact, I just wrote a book about this, believe it or not, it just came out this year, it's called Recovered, and it really just brings you into the mind. And the reason I'm telling you about the book is if you know someone struggling with this, that's the reason I wrote about this story. And so there I was, I was, I was living without gas, electricity, and water. I had no money. Uh, we mastered the art of the cold shower. I would get into freezing cold water, no hot air, no hot water, get out, lather up, get back in the water. And I did that for almost three months because I was more interested in getting high than paying the bills. Let me just kind of pull over for a moment and give you an insight here. Whenever there's a perpetual drug addiction in the life of a person, and we all know people who are alcoholics or drug addicts or struggling with that, amen? Whenever there's a perpetual drug addiction, I can't emphasize this enough for a family member, it's always the result of an enabler, always, always. And I've counseled for 17 years now hundreds of people. And I will tell you, normally it's the mom and she has good intentions. She wants the best for her kids or her husband. Sometimes it was the dad. In my case, it was my dad. My dad would pay my phone bill three times a month and he'd pay the rent twice if I begged him enough. And he wasn't doing it to hurt me. He was trying to help me. But there's only three avenues for an addiction, jail, institutions, or death. So here's the line I want to give you. And I've I've given this to many people through the years to help you think about this. And here's what I want you to see. If you have someone in your life and you're the enabler, here's what I want to speak to you. If you keep being their savior, Jesus never can be. Like, why would they turn to God? Because they have you, right? Why would they surrender to Christ? Because they have mom. So I just want you to think, it was the tough love of my mother who had uh, the courage enough to send me away, which saved my life. 15 friends I've lost since 1999 to drug and alcohol related deaths. Six went to prison. I got so low, I realized I needed help. I went back to my parents and I begged them by God's grace to take me in. Two unbelieving parents decided to show me the grace of God in a way that I've never seen before or since. And they took me in, no strings attached. We went to rehab. My first rehab treatment of all places was Tijuana, Mexico. That's another story for the book. You can read it there, but of all places, I'm in Tijuana. Uh, and I came back, but I thought I was invincible and I was sober and clean for about nine months, got back on drugs again and I relapsed. And the reason I relapsed and got addicted twice to drugs, and I tell people this, and the reason I had to go back to treatment is because the first time in the relapse, I did it without Christ. You need to hear something this morning. Sobriety without Christ is a dead-end street. It's a cul-de-sac. One way in, there's no way out. Because you need someone outside of yourself to set you free from the sin that encapsulates you. And the only person who can do that is the one who made you. 
And I know in a room this size, there are some who are trying to battle addiction, you're keeping it quiet, you, you, you haven't assessed your situation, you haven't been honest, and so you're thinking you can beat it. You cannot beat it without Christ. And so there I was, after the second rehab treatment, I was in my room, it wasn't in a church service, it wasn't in a revival, I got on my knees. And I said these two things to God. I said, God, if you're real, I promise you two things. Number one is I'll, I'll share with the world what you, what you do in my life. I had a $200 a day heroin and cocaine addiction. Every day I woke up, I needed that to live. And the second thing I said is this. I will give you my life completely. I'm not going to sign a card or walk an aisle, raise a hand. This was like a blank check of my life. God, you do whatever you want with my life. November 12, 2002, 17 years ago. I got on my knees and I had a Paul-like radical transformation conversion experience. It was never the same. Like the day before, you could just see the countenance on my face. It was there. I went to my dad the next day and I said, Dad, who's still Catholic? Dad, God's calling me to preach. And my dad looks up from his breakfast. He's like, uh, He's thinking, son, what are you smoking? You know, I thought you just got back from rehab, right? And uh, he says this. He doesn't know anybody. He's like, how are you going to get married by being a priest? You know, like a robe and a necktie. And I said, dad, no, that's not, that's not what God's going to do. And here's how good God is. They wouldn't come to faith right away. But five years later, I got to baptize my dad, my sister, and my mom. who are all followers of Christ, yeah. Uh, and here's, here's a cool thing about how God works. They thought they were saving me physically, which they did. God was using me to save them spiritually. So I don't know what God's going to do this morning, but I know the same God that worked in my life is the same God who still works miracles today. And here's what's cool about God. I want you to know this. He doesn't just work in the miracle working business. He owns the business. Amen? Like he owns the business. And I know this morning, God can do more in a moment in this place than any man or woman could ever manufacture in a lifetime. So I'd like to pray over you if it's okay, if you're at one of our campuses or online, just bow your head for just a moment. And I just want to pray a blessing over you and ask the God who saved me to set you free because I know there are addictions in here and issues and heartache and shame and guilt and sin. Some of you have tried for so long to do it yourself and I just want to pray over you that God would set you free. Before I pray, I just want to ask you, no one looking around, if you're in here today and you're saying, Pastor Ravi, I want to know the same Jesus you know. Like I know who he is. But I've never had a transformation experience. I've never had my eyes open like Bartimaeus that I can see and be set free from my sin. If that's your prayer, if that's, that's the motivation of your heart and you just sense that's what I want to do today, I want to pray over you in just a moment. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are and no one's looking but me. I promise you I won't call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. Thank you, bro. Anyone else? H hands up. Uh, thank you. Anyone else? Pastor Robbie, pray for me in the back. Maybe online you're joining us, one of our campuses. Thank you. Anyone else? Just a moment longer. Thank you, brother. Anyone else in the back? Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Maybe you're in here today and you're saying, hey, I don't, I don't know how I can get through this. I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of God, but I'm not, I'm not having victory over sin. I, I'm actually living a defeated life. And and I need Christ to set me free, Pastor, the same way he set 
you free. And I don't need to know what it is, but I want to pray over you. And, and just by raising your hand, you're just acknowledging that before God. God, recognize me. Would you just slip your hand up for a moment? Again, you don't have to tell me what it is. Just slip your hand up. Maybe you're here today standing in the gap for someone who's struggling with an addiction. Would you just slip your hand up and you're standing in the gap and you're saying, Pastor, that's me. I'm praying for my brother. I'm praying for my sister. I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my my cousin. I'm praying for my friend. Amen. Anyone else? Hands all over. As I pray to the Lord, if your prayer was to surrender to Christ, and whether it's for the first time or, or you're coming back to Christ, it's always the same. You ask God to forgive you for doing some things against him, for not living the way he expects and realizing that you can't do it in your own strength. And then realizing that as you turn from your sin, you're saying, Jesus, you can, and I can't. I know that. Father, I pray for those this morning who were bold enough to take a stand and raise a hand. And I pray, God, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, that they wouldn't even look the same. They wouldn't think the same. God, you give them a new heart, uh, and you would give them a new mind, and you'd give them new direction, and you would use them for your glory. God, you do a work today that can only be explained or understood in eternity in a way that only you get the credit for. We love you, Jesus. We ask it in your name. And everyone said, amen.